Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. With the Ontario legislature prorogued until October, all political eyes are now firmly set on the last week of this 44th general election campaign. Did the leaders' debate change the state of play? Has Justin Trudeau finally made the case for what many people believe was an early unnecessary election? And what about the People's Party? Why are they polling so high? Lots to cover on this Tuesday, September 14th, 2021, so let's get to it. Well, let's start with the news from Queen's Park this week, as we always do, JMM. MPPs were supposed to have returned to the legislature yesterday for the start of the fall sitting. They did not, in fact, show up for business. How come? Uh, Well, our listeners are already aware that the government prorogued the legislature because uh, we had to record last week's podcast before that happened and then uh, beg their forgiveness for missing that. (laughs) So uh, we are going to talk about that today. Uh, But yes, uh, Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell has prorogued the legislature at the request of the Premier. Uh, This kills any bills that hadn't already passed and clears the agenda for the government to start a new session when the House returns, uh, now rescheduled for October 4th. Conveniently, a couple of weeks after the end of the next election. Uh, Indeed, yes. (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't miss a thing. Okay, we'll get to how the opposition parties have reacted to this in a moment, but it's worth saying for our listeners that prorogation is not a dirty word at Queen's Park. There's a lot to say about how any government uses this power, but it's not necessarily a bad thing or even an unusual thing, and Mr. McGrath will explain why. (laughs) You know, this is a really important point. Uh, You know, Prorogation got a bit of a, a bad rap uh, in the 2000s, I think. It was, you know, used um, controversially by uh, Stephen Harper and also uh, here in Ontario by Dalton McGuinty. Uh, but governments prorogue for any number of reasons, uh, one of the big ones being that it lets them have a speech from the throne where the lieutenant governor lays out the government's agenda for the new session. You know, in normal times, it would not be at all unusual for the government to prorogue around this point in the parliamentary cycle. Um, It's actually, frankly, a bit late relative to where previous prorogations have been. Uh, It's been about three years since the government was elected. Uh, So yeah, they would be within their rights to explain to voters what the last year of their agenda is going to look like before, of course, we head to an election next year. Now, you did say in normal times, this wouldn't be unusual. These are not normal times. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to tell anyone. We're in stage four of a global pandemic. There's a federal election going on. So... You want to uh, you want to bevel any of those edges at all? <laughs> sure. Um, you know the federal election is, of course, uh, one reason why the government said it needed to prorogue. Uh, their uh, formal uh, explanation is that uh, there is so much uncertainty around who will form the next government, uh, and this you know has implications for billions of dollars in funding agreements, uh, including potentially a child care agreement between Ottawa and uh, Queen's Park. Uh, so the government has decided to you know, wait until the dust settles uh, before bringing a new throne speech uh, to the House. Uh, there are, of course, um, less noble reasons one might <laughs> consider. Uh, like in the previous federal election, I think a lot of people uh, suspect that uh, the premier just doesn't 
think it's going to be particularly profitable to get mixed up in this election. So keeping things quiet at Queen's Park uh, might just be best for everybody. And beyond that, there's still COVID-19 to deal with. Well, absolutely. And this is where the government, I think, is being criticized most right now. Uh, The opposition parties uh, have really been unanimous in calling on uh, the premier to bring the legislature back. uh, And they've got one item uh, they more or less all want on the agenda, uh, a safe zones law to protect hospitals and other areas from uh, anti-vaccine protesters who've grown um, increasingly, let's say, provocative and aggressive in recent weeks. Uh, The NDP had actually already proposed something like this earlier in the summer. Uh, And on Monday, uh, NDP leader Andrew Horvath said the party has a bill drafted and ready to go if the government calls the legislature back. Uh, As we record this, however, uh, there is no sign that the premier is changing his mind. Very good. That's our bit of on poly for today. Let's now move (laughs) on to the federal political scene. Uh, The big campaign event that took place towards the end of last week were the two leaders debates, one in English, one in French. Sometimes people talk about the debates for many days after the fact. Other times, it's a campaign event, it happens, it's over, and there are no lingering effects. Which do you think is the case this time? I'm not sure that anything the leaders said in the debate itself was actually that memorable this time around, at least in terms of what people were still talking about 24 hours later. Um, I do think some of the the scrums after the debates were more uh, notable than the answers we got from the stage itself. Um, And and there was a a, a lot of... debate about uh, one question in particular uh, about Bill 21. That that caused a lot of uh, chatter uh, about, you know, the, the treatment of Quebec in uh, the debates. But um, it, it was almost, you know, immaterial what the actual answer was. It was the, the fact of the question uh, got some people very angry. Including Yves-Francois Blanchet, who did not... Uh... Yes. <laughs> who did not take kindly to the question at all. Well, let's, okay, let's pick up on that and we'll focus on the English language debate. Uh, which party leader, in your view, helped themselves the most with their debate performance? Well, I want to say that a number of people I've spoken to have praised uh, Green Leader Annamie Paul for her performance on the stage. Uh, But you specifically asked about who helped themselves, and I'm not sure uh, Paul's performance, as good as it was, uh, has moved many voters. Um, Right now, uh, and I'm not sure I would have necessarily predicted this, but right now it looks to me like uh, Justin Trudeau may have brought some um, waffling voters back into the liberal tent, which is, you know, what he needed to do. Now, I hasten to add that conclusion of yours is probably based on polling that has come out today and or yesterday. Yes. And, you know, who the heck knows? By the time people listen to this, the (laughs) polls may have changed again. They do seem to dance around a bit. But was there a leader who really, in your view, harmed their chances with their performance? I don't think so. I don't think anybody really embarrassed themselves. Uh, You know, and that's always a possibility, right? Uh, There have certainly been debates uh, in Canadian politics in the past where a a poor performance hurt a party in the polls. Um, I don't know. I I don't think we saw anything like that this year. But, uh, you know, correct me if you disagree. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, well... We'll get on to some other aspects of the debate that may have been a little more unsavory in a moment. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't think anybody, um, what's the expression they use in sports? I don't think anybody wet the bed uh, at the uh, English (laughs) leaders debate. Um, That was an inelegant way of putting it, but that is the expression. Now, when the deadline for participation in the debate hit, the People's Party did not meet the criteria for participation. They didn't have any MPs in the previous parliament, and they had not reached 4% popularity in nationwide polls. However, 
They are above 4% now. And in Ontario, Ecos has had them as high as 11%, although I think yesterday they had them at about 6.5%. Now, what did we miss, in your view, by not having their leader, Maxime Bernier, on the debate stage? Oof. Um, <laughs> this is a tough one. Uh, I think if Bernier had been on that stage, the entire night would have been about the other leaders beating up on him. And I'm not sure that would have actually been more informative for voters. Um, and and I think that might actually be the best case scenario. I think it, there's potential for it to be much, much worse than that. Um, it's entirely possible for uh, these kinds of appearances to just really, you know, devolve into a clown show. <laughs> yeah, it's also sometimes better for, for your leader to be denied an appearance on the debate stage because it does allow you to say, aha, there's all those elites shutting us out again. And that does keep the troops revved up. Whereas if you show up and you give a less than fabulous performance, uh, you know, your bark ends up being a lot worse than your bite. And people can say, oh, boy, that was a big nothing burger. So it may have been to the People's Party advantage at the end of the day. I don't know that he wasn't able to show up for it. I've seen some people joke that, you know, even if he qualifies next time, Bernier should still refuse just because it seems to have worked out so well for him. <laughs> mm -hmm. OK, good point. Well, I've always been interested in the question of whether People's Party votes are votes that would have gone conservative and therefore their success comes at the Tories expense or whether they are voters who, you know, feel so unrepresented by the other parties that they're new voters and therefore they actually don't poach what would otherwise be conservative voters. Any thoughts on that? You know, this is going to be such an interesting question to dissect over the next few months uh, once we once the votes are actually in and we know what the People's Party's vote share is and where it was largest. Um, you know, uh, one possibility, of course, is that it's a bit of both. Um, my... My intuition, basically, you know, from reading, you know, the polls and getting us, you know, speaking to pollsters about where the People's Party is, is doing uh, best and, and having its strongest um, uh, representation. Uh, my sense is that they are doing strongest in the ridings where the Tories also tend to have extremely sort of lopsided wins. And so one thing that we might see, and, and I really hesitate to sort of make this a, a, a hard and fast prediction, um, but, you know, we might see the People's Party, you know, put up a pretty decent vote share somewhere in that, you know, eight to 12 percent uh, range um, and still not actually elect any uh, MPs simply because, you know, their, their net effect will be to uh, take a conservative riding where the, the conservatives was going to win by 30 points and maybe that conservative only wins it by 10 or 20, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess I should point out here that um, I did spend a day last week up in the riding of Aurora, Oak Ridges, Richmond Hill, which is in York region, a 905 riding, very suburban, uh, expensive houses, uh, a lot of, um, you know, suburban values related issues that people in the 905 would have in common. And to be sure, the Liberals and the Conservatives have the most signs up, but the third most signs up I saw were People's Party signs. So I would not be surprised to see them capture, you know, a decent sized part of the vote. We got to remember, they took 1% of the vote nationally in the last election. Uh, hard to believe they won't do better than that this time. In fact, I'm sure you can probably take to the bank that they will. Oh, yes. Now, we should say a few words about the format of the leaders' debate. One moderator, several journalists asking questions, 
very strict and short time limits to answers. Um, I think also some sort of uh, average Canadians, if I can put it that way, also uh, asking questions as well. I think somebody did the calculation. Was it 13, 14 or 15 different people who were participating in the whole thing by the time it was all said and done? Uh, busy. Okay. What did you think of it? Uh, I don't know how else to put it, except that it was not the best debate I've ever watched. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that reviews were um, very mixed. Uh, and and I, I think we could fairly say that there was more negative than uh, positive uh, evaluations, at least on social media. Just to give, you know, a, a pretty quick rundown here. Um, you know, Frank Graves, uh, who's the co-founder of Ecos Polling, tweeted, uh, OMG, is it over? It was a meaningless waste of time, possibly the most vacuous and tedious debate in Canadian political history. Tell us how you really feel, Frank. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey <laughs> Stevens, writing in his w- weekly column, uh, it was ghastly and embarrassment and insult to the intelligence of Canadian and a disservice to voters who hoped to learn something useful about the five leaders and the issues in next Monday's election. Uh, Ellie Alboim, who produced political election specials at CBC for over 20 years, tweeted, multiple argumentative moderators who debate with the debaters, moderators who are at tendentious preambles to questions that go longer than answers are allowed to, a format that prizes 20-second answers and does not allow thoughtful exposition, a shameful abuse of voters. Uh, that said, I do want to, you know, be fair here. Uh, the reviews were not entirely negative. Jen Gerson wrote in her newsletter, The Line, that the format wasn't to blame. The party leaders are uh, for turning debates into, quote, prefabricated focus group talking points they'd already recited a half a dozen times. Well, I have to say that would have been a minority opinion if my yes. email inbox and my social media feed were any indication. Uh, Social media isn't always an accurate indication of what people think, but I note with interest that probably 98% of what I saw on my social media feeds suggested the debate was unwatchable and a complete waste of time, which may be why the polls, you know, haven't changed all that much since the debate took place. Four days later, no one seems to be talking about it anymore in terms of actual substance that came out of it. They're still talking about how they didn't like the format, the moderation, the journalists, etc., but... um, No one seems to come away. Nobody seems to have come away from the debate. I shouldn't say nobody. Few people seem to have come away from the debate much more illuminated. Let's put it that way. I think this is going to uh, inform uh, the debate, so to speak, that we have about um, this whole structure of like the debates commission and the threshold for parties. And, you know, it's it's hard to get people to tune into these election debates and, you Putting up a bad one just makes it harder next time around. So, uh, you know, here's hoping that we can uh, figure out a better way to do it next time. Yeah. And sadly, the Debates Commission has been in charge of the last two, and it's been two stinkers in a row. So I guess they got to think of something else. Well, finally, we're less than a week away from Election Day, which is next Monday, September 20th. Advance polls, of course, have been open for a while now. Mr. McGrath, would you care to share an overarching final comment about what this election has been about? Well, first of all, I, I think I have a, a shameful confession about the debates, and that is that um, I no longer actually watch them live. Um, I think the, the, the next morning I just watch them on YouTube. I get a sense of what people were already talking about, and I can watch it on, you know, one and a half or double speed, uh, the same way I consume podcasts. Um, the election itself you know i think it's effectively a referendum on the liberals and uh that's not entirely a bad thing for the liberal party right now um 
we will see, obviously, whether uh, they manage to, to hang on to their support and hang on to a reasonably strong position in the commons. Uh, a majority seems probably unlikely, but who knows how polls are going to move in the last week, honestly. Um, but if we end up with another liberal minority, I think a lot of people, including a lot of people inside the Liberal Party, will be asking what all the fuss was about. Hmm. Well, the last question I have for you is, when you play the leaders debate at double speed, which one of the leaders sounds the most like Alvin and the Chipmunks? <laughs> no, you better not answer that. Don't answer that. I changed my mind. But people, more seriously, though, people can, if they want to see you and I going back and see you and me going back and forth uh, with uh, some political prognostication on the potential for what the next house could look like and who might form government and how, they should check our Unpoly newsletter. Uh, which um, I, I wonder if we can put a link to that in the show notes just so people can see that because you're quite right. We're less than a week away and I don't think anybody really knows for sure who's going to win this thing. So there. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can let us know what you liked and what you didn't and help make our show just a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsactvo.org. Uh, in fact, Wilma from Toronto emailed us to say, I wrote a few months ago to let you know how much I appreciated the podcasts. I have not changed my mind. I look forward to settling down on Tuesday mornings to listen to the discussions by these two erudite gentlemen, Steve Pakin and John Michael McGrath, about the behind-the-scenes info in Ontario politics. It provides much food for thought. Today was no exception. The clarification of the interminable discussion about vaccine passports was excellent. And uh, Wilma, thank you very much for that vote of confidence. I've never been called erudite before, uh, and uh, I and I'm sure Steve appreciate it. <laughs> Wilma, if you'd seen me at BMO Field last Friday night to watch the Tiger Cats lose to the Toronto Argonauts because of an extra point that hit the upright, I was the furthest thing from an erudite gentleman on that occasion. So, but I appreciate, appreciate the nice comments anyway. Time now for our quotes of the week. And for mine, we're going to go back to the leaders debate of last Thursday evening. The Green Party leader, Enemy Paul, said something that I suspect resonated very deeply. Uh, either with people of color or those who see themselves unrepresented by the other party leaders. Here is a snippet of her first answer. Being who I am and in this position has been incredibly hard. Uh, being here tonight was not an obvious thing. I've had to crawl over a lot of broken glass to get here. I'm proud to be here. I'm proud to be the first of my kind. And because I am the first of my kind, I know that I won't be the last. That's Green Party leader Enemy Paul referring to the fact that she is the first ever black, Jewish, female party leader on a debate stage in Canadian history. And my quote of the week comes from Ontario NDP leader Andrew Horvath, who spoke out front of Queen's Park on Monday, urging the premier to recall the legislature to protect hospitals from anti-vaccine protests. Here's some of what she had to say. The last thing that we want to see uh, is people being impeded from getting into the hospital. Uh, and so whether that's those frontline healthcare heroes that we know are working day and night to, uh, you know, to literally to care for people who are still contracting COVID-19, as we see in the statistics every day, many of those are not vaccinated people. Uh, some of them perhaps are people that are on those protest lines on, a, on another day. Uh, so we need to get those people, uh, those heroes back into the hospitals or into their hospitals, into their workplace uh, without having to deal with these vitriolic protesters. 
That's NDP leader Andrew Horvath on Monday. Okay, one last note before we go. Because the election is on next Monday night, and because we normally record these podcasts on Monday afternoon, it obviously would be pointless to stick to our usual schedule because we won't have any results for you by the time you tune into this Tuesday morning. So we are going to stay up real late, real late. We're going to wait for those voters from British Columbia to come in. And after we know what's happened, John Michael and I will record a podcast late Monday night, maybe early Tuesday morning. And then we will be a little bit later getting into your inbox for next week's On Poly podcast, because, of course, we want to analyze all the results that come in from Monday, September 20th. I hope everybody votes. That is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, September 14th, six days until Election Day. It's produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, a new tagline in advance of Election Day. As we say in Cook County, Chicago, vote early, (laughs) vote often. Don't encourage our listeners to commit federal crimes, Steve, but have a good week. (laughs) (laughs) You too.